You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. We're looking at Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 6. If you could open your Bibles there, and if you don't have a Bible, we can get a Bible to you if you just... Uh, nod your head, raise your hand, stand up. Someone can get a Bible to you. Luke chapter 6 is where we are. What we did last week is we looked at the uh, four blessings in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's come to be known, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look this morning at Jesus' woes. So I've uh, divided this sermon so that we can spend uh, all morning talking about the woes of Jesus. Doesn't that sound like fun? Does that tell you something about me? That's what we're looking at this morning, Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. Uh, Little theologians, if you could draw a picture for me, I'd like for you to draw a picture of a child staring at a mirror. So you're going to have to draw a child staring at a mirror with a reflection uh, uh, in that mirror. And then I want you to draw a child staring uh, up into heaven. A child staring up into heaven. That's what I'd like for you to draw for me. Maybe that'll make sense as you listen to me preach from this passage. Luke chapter 6, verses 24 through 26 is what we're looking at this morning. Let me, let me pray for the reading and preaching of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, even as we uh, look down at the Word in our lap and as we read these verses, we pray that your Spirit would be with us, giving us insight and understanding that we would discern your revealed will. It is perfect. It is true. It is right. And Holy Spirit, would you be with me as I preach this revealed will of our Heavenly Father, that I would be clear, distinct, simple, that you would take these words and uh, appoint these words for usefulness in the hearts of the listeners, both this morning and tomorrow and the day after and the day after. All to the glory of our Jesus in his name. Amen. So again, Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse uh, 24, just 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of our Lord. So last week we were looking at uh, blessings. The Greek word for uh, blessed, blessed is he, is makarios, which is sometimes translated as happiness. Uh, But I wanted you to understand the fullness of makarios is uh, happiness before God, not just any kind of happiness that you might experience in your life. Those blessings refer to a happiness before God. And what's remarkable about those blessings in those four verses that precede what we've just read together now is that happiness is set right next to things that they just don't seem very happy. Uh, Poverty and hunger and weeping 
and persecution. Uh, those things are a part of this makarios, this blessedness before God, this happiness before God. Uh, the poverty, uh, the poorness uh, has to do with a spiritual poverty, an, in an inability to save oneself. The hunger has to do with a hunger for mercy, an understanding of your state before God. Do you see makarios, happiness is happiness before God. And so the hunger is a hunger for mercy before God. The weeping is a weeping over sin and awareness of a boundary or a division or obstacle between you and God, a weeping over sin. And the persecution is a persecution before God. It's a persecution not because of uh, any of your greatness. It's not the kind of persecution that vindicates you. It's a persecution for his name's sake. And so what Jesus is doing when he preaches about happiness, makarios, he's uh, helping us to properly understand what happiness is as a Christian. What is that happiness living on this earth between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus in a world that is broken and filled with hurt and injustice and pain, and I taste it very, very personally. How is it possible for me to be happy in that world? And Jesus is teaching, teaching us what that happiness is like. It's a happiness before the presence of God. It's understanding something deeply true about yourself. And Jesus, when he uh, goes to the woes, uh, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't have these woes. These woes just show up right here in Luke chapter 6. But when Jesus preaches these woes, as recorded here in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is actually saying the same thing that he said in the blessings. He's just kind of describing them uh, from the backside, a, a different perspective. The word uh, well, so makarios is the word for happiness in the Greek. The word for uh, well is uai, a funny word, uai. Uh, and it can refer to just hopelessness, that is earthly hopelessness, alas, right? You think of, uh, in, a, in a Shakespearean terminology, alas, she doesn't love me. Right? Uh, alas, alas, alas. And, and, and ooh-I can be understood like that. But I think when Jesus uses woe here, just like he used happiness, it kind of jarred the audience as, ooh, we're talking about happiness, things that make me happy. And then he says, Hap you're happy when you're poor in spirit. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. That same contrast is here because I think that when Jesus is using the word woe, he's talking about the eternal dimension of woe. Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. And I think what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 9 is he's saying, woe to me if I preach another gospel, a different or contrary gospel. You can look in and see how Jude uses the word woe. And when Jude talks about woe, he equates this woe with an eternal fire, an eternal fire. And so there's this eternal dimension to woe. Later in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is going to use woe in reference to those people who are religiously self-righteous, who think that their obedience actually is salvific. They're, they're the self-righteous religious people who think that through their obedience, they actually can be saved before God. 
And in fact, Jesus is going to use the word woe in reference to who of all people? Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays him. Woe the one who betrays Jesus, Luke 22. And so uh, the passage is really striking because Jesus is using this powerful word woe, but listen to what follows, things that actually are pretty good, right? Like being rich, that's okay, right? And like having lots of food, that seems like that's okay too. And so you have this, this contrast. And, and, you know, we're not told this in Scripture. And so pure speculation here, uh, it's, it's the kind of sermon that as Jesus preaches it, people would snicker in the audience. People would, would twist and turn a little. This is a funny thing to say. What are you going on about? I mean, it's almost like when he says, um, blessed are those who are poor, there would be a little bit of snickering. You know, the, the wealthy people maybe would say, well, hold on, blessed are poor people, right? My wealth is evidence of blessing, is it not? But the woes are a bit different because he says, woe to those who are rich. And there would be folks in the audience that are thinking, well, I, I don't, I don't get that. I mean, that's actually what I'd like to have. I'd like to be rich. Woe to those who are full. Well, so you just you have this jarring sense that Jesus is trying to shake people. He's actually helping people to understand what it really looks like to live on earth and yet know how you are represented before heaven. On earth, you actually know what it looks like to stand before God for all eternity. And Jesus is jarring his audience. And what what he's saying in this passage is he's saying, uh, life in the kingdom of God, uh, I, I say there includes in your notes, life in the kingdom of God includes living with an eternal understanding of who we are. But if I could change that, I would say life in the kingdom of God requires living with an understanding of who we are before God. There's a heavenly dimension to us, and there's an earthly dimension to us. And Jesus wants to take all of those who would say that the earthly dimension of who you are is all that's about you, and he wants to shake that and rattle you so that you would begin to think about how you're viewed from God's perspective. And that's what he's doing with the people. The first thing that I want us to notice is I want us to notice that the tone of the Beatitudes, those first four statements that we didn't read this morning, the tone that's there actually carries through to these woes. You remember that I said that verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, I went to a scholar by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, and I said, you know, Ferguson says that that statement, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, actually flows into all the other, all the other blessings. So no, blessing number one, verse 20, flows into blessings two, three, and four. And in fact, that's how you understand two, three, and four, is by looking at that first blessing. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And I think the same thing is happening here with verse 24. The first woe, which sets itself up against that first beatitude, that first woe in verse 24, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Uh, your consolation would be liter- literally your encouragement or the thing that makes you uh, resolute and strong. Uh, woe to you 
uh, who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This, this richness that gives birth to comfort and ease and peace and consolation and encouragement, this actually, verse 24, flows into the other three woes. What I'm saying is this, is if you get that first blessing, you get the other blessings. If you get that first woe, you get the other woes. And what Jesus seems to be saying in verse 24 is he's saying that you have to be the kind of person that is honest about how you see yourself. You have to be honest about how you see yourself. Do you find yourself to be rich, literally to be abundant in possessions? Do you find yourself to be contented? Woe to you. You hear what he's saying? All of you who are here this morning, do you find yourself to be contented, to be rich, to be well satisfied? That's nice, but woe to you eternally. It's a jarring sermon. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying that life here, between the first and second coming, life here is a kind of life where we can actually find a certain measure of contentedness. And if we're honest, all of us are going to bend our lives in such a way that we achieve that contentedness. Aren't we? Don't we? And Jesus wants us to be cautious about that. He wants us to understand something about ourselves so that we can look at that richness that we have achieved and look at it critically and say that this is not my actual consolation. He wants you to look at your full bellies and to look at those full bellies um, and, and critique them in a contemplative way and understand that, you know, the belly's full, but it's not real fullness. It's full, but I'm not satisfied. I, I heard one preacher say, you know, there's a certain kind of contentment that you have on earth with a lowercase c, and there's a certain kind of contentment that you have with an uppercase c. That may be a funny way to look at this, but it seems, it seems as though Jesus is saying there are certain things that you can have on life, but you need to look at them as if they're not what you think they are. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. The first point of the sermon is simply that the tone of the Beatitudes carries through to the woes. The second is this. I, I think this is an interesting question when we look at these woes. How can I have something and yet not have it? This is particularly true with regards to uh, full. You know, how can I be full, a full stomach, and yet at the same time be hungry? Or how can I laugh, but at the same time uh, filled with mourning and weeping? Well, let me just go down these and, and consider that. If each of these things are good things, then why the sadness? Why the woe? Well, first off, you have to see that each of these are good. I hope you're willing to say that. Each of these things are actually good. To have lots of possessions, to be rich, is not wickedness in and of itself. Jesus didn't go out seeking for uh, members of the wealthy class and asking them, asking them to take a vow of, of poverty. He doesn't do that. There are wealthy people that he speaks with that he never says, now go and become poverty-stricken. I think a great example of this is in the New Testament church when wealthy people are, show up all over Scripture as using their wealth for the church 
And it never once does, for instance, a figure like Paul say, okay, that's great. You have this large house that can provide a place for us to meet. But let's, let's go ahead and you know, I, don't know, I don't know what he would say. He would say, you have a large house, but now give it to me or something so that you can be poor. He actually allows the owner of the large house to remain rich. So I don't want us to look at this and say, well, all, wealth, all wealthiness is bad. And, and just work your way down, you'll see what I'm doing here. Uh, the same thing with being full. You know, to have a full belly is actually not a bad thing. In fact, when Paul, Paul preaches in Acts 14, and Paul is going to say even to non-believers that God can fill the stomachs of, all, all, of unbelievers. He can bring rains from heaven and fruitful seasons to satisfy hearts with food and gladness. The same word is used there. To be full is not necessarily a bad thing. God makes believers and non-believers full. I think of uh, Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. They ate to their fullness, to their satisfaction. It's the same word here. And laughter is, is a little bit trickier. I, I think here, I don't have a verse because this word for laughter uh, shows up only in a couple of places, but um, I don't think anyone here would argue that Christians are not, or, or that humans shouldn't laugh, and anyone who is laughing, woe upon them, they should receive eternal damnation. Laughter is good. We think of Luke chapter 1, where people are supposed to be filled with joy and gladness at the coming of Jesus. And if you're here this morning as a Christian and you're, sit, you're arguing that maybe I should never laugh, never be joyful, I don't know where that proof text is. It's good for a Christian to smile and to laugh. And then finally, the last one, uh, for people to speak well of you. I would hope that you're here this morning and you, you hear me say this. It is good for people to speak well of you. It's a qualification of an elder that they would be above reproach, 1 Timothy 3. And 1 Timothy 5, 7 says that all of us should be that way. The church should be filled with people who are above reproach. So when Jesus says, where do those who have people speaking well of you, that's a good thing, actually. And you see what I'm doing? I'm challenging, I'm challenging you to look at, look at these woes and begin to ask, wait a minute, what is Jesus after here? Because these things in and of themselves are not wicked. But each of these things can be had in a wicked way, in a way that brings displeasure to God. An easy one is wealth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice that Paul doesn't say, As for the rich, demand that they sell everything and become poor. He doesn't say that, does he? He says there's such a thing as having wealth in an ungodly way and having wealth in a godly way. Jesus is saying, woe well to those who possess their wealth in an ungodly way, and we begin to get a hint of what that looks like. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, boastful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Is it possible for someone with a lot of money to set their, their uh, hopes for all eternity on that money? Do you think it's possible? Well, I'll let you answer that question. Paul seems to think it's possible. 
but not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Uh, fullness, we've already talked about this, to have a full belly. Uh, this actually is a good thing, but there is a sense in which you can have a full, your des- all of your desires in life can be for that full belly. That sometimes it's okay to be hungry. You can place all of your desires on that fullness so that you become a slave to your appetites. And that fullness, earthly satisfaction, becomes not simply something that is simply good. Jesus feeds the, feeds the 5,000 and their tummies are full and that's good. But it actually can be something that is ultimate. If my tummy's not full, God doesn't love me. And laughter. Laughter. How can we laugh appropriately and then laugh inappropriately? This is a tricky one. What is a wicked way of possessing laughter and joy? It may be that you love laughter and joy a little bit too much, and you're not willing to suffer for the honor of Jesus. It may be that you love laughter and joy so much that you refuse to mourn with a brother or a sister. It may be that you love laughter so much that there is, it, you, can't, you can't imagine being a Christian and not laughing every day, not having joy every day, but recognizing that even as a Christian, sometimes life is sad. And being well-liked, I think this is particularly relevant today. We've talked about ways in which being well-liked is actually a good thing to be above reproach. But a lot of us desire very much the glory of man. This is using that that emotion of being well-liked in a wicked way. I want nothing more than to be glorified by others. I want the glory of man so badly that it becomes ultimate in my life. I'll do whatever it takes to be popular. Let me tie these together a little bit by saying this. Do you ever think about life being risky? I mean, not life being risky as adrenaline junkie risky, but but life risky just in terms of uh, I want to be rich. I want to have possessions. You should want possessions. Um, You need a car to get to work. Um, It's good to have a a home to live in. Um, It is good to have a a stove to prepare food on. You want these things. But you also need to understand that wanting those things can also be wicked. It's good to not starve, to actually have food, but at the same time, uh, desiring to have a full stomach can lead you astray. Honestly, just life is a little bit risky if you're a Christian. We look at these things, we want to call them good, but we understand that our non-believing friends and family members will very often call those things not good, but ultimate. And then really to see them as being good. It is good to have money to be able to pay bills. It is good to be well fed. It is good to have joy in life. And it is good to be respected by others. But they should never, in no circumstance, should they ever become ultimate. I'll do anything and everything for them. And that's why I say life is a little bit 
risky, and it's risky for this, and this is the third point, final point of the sermon, is we have to, as Christians, measure ourselves the way God will measure us in the future. When Jesus returns physically and we stand before him, is he going to be impressed by our accumulation of wealth? Is he going to be impressed by our full belly? Is he going to be impressed by our cheerful demeanor? Is he going to be impressed by people who think highly of us? I was listening to a talk uh, recently in which the uh, speaker, Owen Strayan, a church historian, uh, gives an example from uh, 1940s, uh, the preaching ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was a man whom God caused to preach during a season of turmoil in London. Uh, he was preaching in 1944 uh, in the middle of that season when the Germans were bombing London. Uh, buzz bombs, uh, V-1, these uh, rocket-propelled bombs were um, landing in London sometimes as many as a hundred a day. But life had to go on. And the people gathered together to worship, and Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching to some 2,000 people. He was an electrifying minister. And as he is praying, he was known for these long uh, pastoral prayers. You think my prayers are a little bit too long? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, prayed for a long time every Sunday morning. And as he was praying, um, everyone in church uh, heard that, that whizzing, high-pitched noise of a buzz bomb flying overhead and quickly approaching and as he prays, uh, he doesn't look up. The story is told by Ian Murray. He doesn't look up. He, he, his eyes are closed, and he's praying, but he stops. He pauses just at the moment when the buzz bomb uh, makes contact. And it doesn't hit the church, but it hits near enough that it shakes the church and fills the church with uh, dust and particles. But Martin Lloyd-Jones just stood there with his head bowed, and he paused. Uh, Ian Murray says that one lady in the congregation looked up and she could see that he's, he's standing there at the pulpit with his head down and his eyes closed, but she sees all the particles and, and she says it felt like it, she was in heaven. Although that's a little dodgy, isn't it? Looking at Martin Lloyd-Jones and you feel like you're in heaven. That's probably not good. A deacon comes up in the middle of, the, of this long pause. A deacon comes up and dusts the pulpit. Just, that's all he does. He dusts the pulpit. And Martin Lloyd-Jones continues praying right where he left off. He says, Amen. And he takes up Jude, verses 20 and 21, the text that he was preaching from that morning. And it says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a man who kept himself, kept himself in the love of God. And I believe that's what Jesus is getting after in both the Beatitudes and the Woes because they both, they both these four statements, they, they work together. And God is saying that he has the right to make happy people regardless of their circumstances. And he has the right to judge people regardless of their circumstances.
God defines happy people as those who are poor in spirit. They know that they can't rescue themselves. They know that they need a rescuer. Happy people are people who are hungry for mercy. They desire for God to hold out his merciful hand because if he doesn't, they're doomed. Happy people are people who weep over their sin. They have an awareness of their sinfulness before God. But happy people are persecuted, and not for their opinions, but they are persecuted by unbelievers for their faithfulness. I want to say something that may uh, sound surprising to you, but you can investigate it in Hebrews 12. Nobody was happier than Jesus. By this definition, nobody was happier than your Lord and Savior. Hebrews 12 says this, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You hear the theme of the sermon, the irony of the sermon, that these, these things that seem happy could be set next to the word woe, and these things that seem unhappy can be set next to the word blessed. And yet, the cross is set next to the joy of Jesus. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, without Christ, you will always make richness, fullness, happiness, and popularity ultimate. Without Christ, you'll always make those things ultimate. What else is going to be ultimate? What is going to uh, tame your heart as it desires to be rich, desires to be fed, uh, desires to be happy at any and all cost, and desires to be popular? What is going to push back that sinful, wicked desire but Christ Jesus alone? His righteousness covers you so that his happiness becomes your happiness. And with Christ, you finally know how to look at wealth, fullness, satisfaction, happiness, popularity. Christ actually teaches us how to pursue these things and to not make them ultimate. And on that last day, that day when our, when our wealth clearly means nothing, when our full stomach will be like a vast void, when our laughter will become weeping, all the people who glorify you will be gone, what is that time going to be like? For the Christian, it will be a sweet time. You'll understand yourself as you truly are, a member of the citizenship of heaven, one who belongs to God. May we not be the kind of people who allow our circumstances to make that decision for us, but instead understand who God says we are in Christ. Amidst various circumstances, I can be happy. Amidst various circumstances, I can be sinful. But my God is all in all. He knows what's best for me. And life in the kingdom is having an understanding eternally of who we really are. Are. We have that in Christ Jesus. Let's praise him for that, and let's submit to his food at this table. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you that you have sent to us Jesus, who is our satisfaction. There's no money, or food, or laughter, or popularity that gives us that kind of satisfaction. He is it for us. 
Would you remind us of that? And as we come to this table, would that be ever before us that we can seek nourishment in a thousand different ways, but this, this nourishment at this table is our eternal nourishment. Jesus, thank you for feeding us with your body, for feeding us with your blood. In your name, Jesus. Amen.